0: So it was interesting, Meredith just informed me that my son, the one with the sport coat which he calls his lawyer jacket and the fedora, told her this morning that he needed a bow tie. And so <laughs> I don't know how I feel about all that, but uh, he goes, can't you take a regular tie and tie it around kind of in a bow? And I thought, I don't know that I'm ready for a, a six-year-old bow tie and a jacket and a fedora. Um, but nonetheless, it's kind of interesting. We, uh, we're actually stepping into week five of our kind of uh, ex- exploration through the book of James. And... Really, all this began as I kind of began to look at my own life and started thinking about how much time I spend living in the middle of mediocrity. That I spend a lot of my life living in the middle of spiritual mediocrity. That I'm just okay with where I am. Yet I know that God is calling me to so much more. And I began to look at the Book of James and realize that that James's entire letter to these followers of Christ was a, followers of Christ is about stepping out of this middle ground, out of this middle mediocrity, into a life that God was calling them to. And part of that understanding is really coming face to face with who God is and who he says that we are. And we really understand who we are in relation to the grace of Jesus Christ. It changes the entire conversation and it pushes us beyond mediocrity into lives that are authentic, authentic lives that say, Jesus, you have all that I am. And last week, we kind of finished up a, a continuation of week three where we really explored this sort of picture of our bruised and battered hearts that have been redeemed by the love of Jesus Christ. We've been bought out of slavery, out of the bondage of slavery, and, and become slaves to Christ. And because of that, our response to the word of God was really important. And we looked at James' words and how he talked about becoming, becoming doers of God's word. We need to move beyond just being listeners and hearers and appreciators and actually becoming doers of God's word, that I hear God's word and I am so compelled, God's kind of written and spoken and proclaimed word, that I am so compelled by it that my life responds in obedience. And we really explored the difference between just hearing what God's saying to you and actually being people that say, God, I want to be someone that says yes to you, even if that, that, that's costly, even if it's difficult, even if it means having a radical move of trust in my own life, I want to be someone that responds as a doer of the word of God, that your move compels me to live differently. And so we wrapped up chapter one ending on that thought, James telling us who we are and how our lives should live in obedience in response to God's word. Now it's important that as we move forward we keep those things in in our minds. We have to understand that James is is building kind of a succession of things and so it's going to impact how we see the rest of the letter. So we're going to step into chapter two but we cannot forget what we have learned and discovered in chapter one. It's going to um, add depth and meaning and change the way that we read the rest of, uh, of James's letter. But that being said, we're going to kind of uh, take a, a different look at chapter 2 today and really explore what it might look like if we were really stepping into lives that lived who we truly were called to be. So go ahead and grab your Bible, James chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there is probably one in near proximity to you. Feel free to grab it and use it. Um, if you don't have one, don't own one, keep it. We want you to have that. If you know someone that needs one, you know, take it and give it to them. We will replace the ones we've got there. If you do own one, bring it every single week. We're going to be in every single week. We're going to open up God's Word and unpack it together as we kind of journey through the book of James, verse by verse by verse. So we're going to be opening up to James chapter 2 this morning, and before we go and read God's Word and ask the Lord to reveal to us, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, I confess, like most of us in this room this morning, that we walk through these doors with baggage. Uh, God, we walk through these doors with distractions, life distractions, work distractions, home distractions, whatever. God, we walk through this door with stuff, and um, Lord, we pray that right now, as we prepare to enter into your presence and, and open your word, that you would just remove some of that whatever we walk in these doors with this morning, God, you would just slowly be chiseling those things away. Whatever calluses have been built around our hearts, whatever struggles we may may be having secretly or publicly, God, we pray that you would pull those away this morning so that you might get our undivided heart. Pray right now, and and if you need to confess something in your own heart before you go before the Lord, just, just do that. If you need to Just ask God to remove something, then just do that. Whatever you need to do to to create an avenue where you can lay your heart bare before the Lord this morning, just take a few minutes, a few seconds, if you will, before we open God's word and do that. Just pray for yourself. Take a moment and just pray for someone around you. Um, Even if you don't know them, never seen them, don't know their name, just pray for them. Pray that God would move in their hearts and in their lives this morning. God, we know that when we encounter your word, it's an encounter with you. We don't take that lightly. So, Father, reveal truth to us this morning. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Uh, God, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, convict us where we need to be convicted, heal us where we need to be healed. Um, Lord, we pray that you would move in our lives and hearts and that as we learned last week when we hear God's word today, that we might become doers of what you call us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So James shifts gears today, like we're going to see a, 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 almost a complete kind of move away from where he was the past four weeks, and he's going to step into more about living out who he just told us we were in Christ. So we spent the first four weeks really exploring what it meant to be a slave to Christ and understanding our own identity in Jesus, that we have been bought with a price, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning, but really what James is doing is he's saying, now it's time to begin to live who you really are. So he starts off in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, and we'll kind of work through some of these. We're going to try and make it all the way down through 12, believe it or not, today. Um, And we're going to go through the first four verses first, and then we'll just kind of unpack them as we go. James says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at the floor of my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with your evil thoughts? So James starts off with a pretty specific scenario. He says, brothers, Christians, believers, followers of Christ, let's suppose that two people, two men, two souls walk into your meeting, your gathering, your church, your fellowship like we're having this morning. Let's say these two individuals walk in and let's say that one of them is just, you can identify him as wealthy. I mean, it's, he's got gold rings and nice clothes and he just looks well put together, all right? And suppose he walks in and, and you show him a place of, of sort of prominence, here's a great seat, we're glad you're here, you know, go ahead and sit over here. And he says, suppose another man walks in, another living, breathing soul, and, and this person's poor, and it's very clear, and they stink, and they smell, and you can tell that they have been sleeping outside or whatever. He says, suppose that person comes in. What do you say to that person? Do you say, here, come sit over here, or stand over there, or, or sit at my feet? And he says, listen, if you show the rich person or the person that kind, of, uh, kind of embodies wealth or a place of prominence a better place than you do the poor person, have you not discriminated against yourselves and basically fallen in sin in your own evil thoughts? And, and I think this scenario is really interesting because at first it doesn't sound like, I mean, how, how can those things be so evil? I mean, James is a really specific word by your evil behavior, your evil thoughts. I mean, we didn't turn either of them away, right? I mean, they both came in. You know, the, the guy who was dressed nicer sat a little closer to front, the guy that kind of smelled sat a little back farther in the back. But they're both welcome here. Seems a little extreme. But you know what I really think James is doing is he's getting at something, get something a little bit bigger than just rich and poor and, and, and whatnot. He's getting at, at something that's really kind of penetrated my heart in a very deep way over the past four or five years, and that is this fact, that I believe the church loves pretty people. Now, you probably heard me say that before because it's something that's been kind of resonating with me for years. But I truly believe the church loves pretty people. You know, when we go to church and we talk to people about church, they love to tell you who goes to their church. Oh, do you know that so-and-so, president of uh, so-and-so, goes church with us? Oh, really? We're kind of infatuated with celebrity pastors and celebrity worship leaders and celebrity kind of Christian authors. We live in that culture that says, oh, people of prominence. Yeah, we may not give them a a better seat, but we really celebrate who they are. We like to talk about the fact that so-and-so does this or so-and-so does that. We love pretty people. And not only that, we love people who are in recovery from their ugly, nasty, dirty lives, right? We love that. We love the story of the redeemed. The problem with these things is that the gospel is really messy. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a pretty thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ intersects the dirty, messy areas of life and challenges us to be radically authentic. See, I think the church loves the story of the redeemed person. The person who had a broken life and is now whole. And they stand up and we clap and we say, yeah, Jesus. I think we love that. But I don't think the church knows what to do with the dirty, broken, messed up person. The person that James is talking about. And we've met a lot of them along the way. And I may have told you this story before. But, but uh, I don't know, eight or so years ago, <clears throat> I was in a soup kitchen. Working in a soup kitchen in Canada, of all places. And I, was, I walked into this room as we were getting ready to serve this meal. And I saw this blonde-headed teenager-looking girl. And I honestly, from the moment I saw her, I knew that she was dying. I mean, I could just sense it. It was like a physical and spiritual death that was draped over her. She looked ill. She had her head kind of hung down in this cup of coffee. But yet I could tell she was young. But her body sort of bore the scars of like a a life that's lived 10 times as long as she was. And I felt compelled to just go sit with her and, and, and look across the table at her. And so I sat and I looked across the table at this girl and her eyes were darting and I began to ask her questions. And it was really uncomfortable and uneasy and she didn't want to talk to me. But eventually what it came down to is we began to have this conversation about her really broken life. And this girl told me about how <clears throat> she had been abused in her own home. How she had run out when she was 13. She was an addict. How she had become a prostitute and how she was living on the streets. How she had recently found out that she had contracted hepatitis C, which was no cure. And that she was physically wasting away. And more so, inside of her life, she was dying and she knew it. And she looked at me as I tried to tell her about this sort of love of Jesus. This this love that that was going to change everything in her life if she would just open up her heart to it. And it was like having a conversation with someone that spoke a different language. My heart broke for her because she was desperate and dying and running from the Lord And we sat there all morning and we just talked really she listened and I listened and we talked and I thought to myself my life does not intersect with people like this very often but I started thinking you know what this girl needed was she needed Jesus but she needs the church she needs someone to tell her that she is valued and loved and cared for even though her life was an absolute disaster even though she was dying and I began to think as I was sitting there at the church scenario I was in at the time thinking what would it look like if Kim walked in the doors of my church and not recovery Kim you know the Kim that stands up three years later and says look I've been sober for 17 months and God has changed me and I used to be a drug addict and a prostitute praise Jesus and we all clap not that Kim but the Kim that decided for whatever reason to risk and walk through our doors, diseased, still a prostitute, still an addict, still ashamed and still fearful. What do we do with her? Kim lives in Canada. A few years ago, I met a guy, and I've told somebody about this before. I met a, a homeless guy on the corner, of Penn, and uh, up there by the turnpike and his name was literally One-Legged John. It's what he told me to call him. And he had one leg, so it fit. And he said, call me One-Legged John. It's what everybody else calls me. I said, okay. Started visiting with him and a few of his friends and kind of developed a relationship with them and spent some time at their camp over there, way behind Target. And long story, really short point is this, is that one day I invited John to come to church with us. And John's response to me was, I would like that, but I know that all people will do is just stare at me. I'm homeless, and I've got one leg. And I thought, maybe. What if the people that James was talking about, this poor person, was really the picture of Kim or John? What do we do when they walk in here? Not redeemed John, who now has a job and a home, but John that still stands on the corner, only has one leg. Is an alcoholic in a mess? Kim, who's disease-ridden and still going to live on the streets? Do we hold our purses a little tighter? Do we hope they don't sit next to me and my two kids? What if in our last song, Kim wants to hold your hand? You see, the church loves pretty people. And the church loves the story of the redeemed. But the church doesn't know what to do with the broken With the messy and with the jacked up but the gospel at its core deals in the messy the gospel at its core meets people right where they are and i think that because the church loves pretty people so much that we pretend that we're better than we are so we walk into our churches wearing masks we walk into our churches living inauthentic lives Because we look around us and the people around us seem to have it together. And so much of what we do and experience in church is a facade, it's a front. None of us really want to admit that we're broken, that our marriages are broken, that we steal, that we lust, that we drink too much. None of us really want to admit that we have struggles and fears that no one will ever know about that we've done this at work or this over here, none of us really want to air those things. But you know that what we've been looking at over the past four weeks and the reality of James chapter 1 is the gospel, and the gospel at its very core exposes. It exposes you and I for who we are. It exposes us opens our heart up to the reality that we are sinful broken messed up people we are not perfect christians in recovery from old sinful lives but we are living in messed up lives now and the gospel of jesus christ exposes that truth and says understand who you are you are a broken messed up sinful person that has only been redeemed by the grace and love of jesus christ so quit living like you're something else And I'm struck with James's comments here because he says, listen, when those two people walk in the room, how do you see them? With your eyes and with your heart. You didn't turn them away, but you thought something different, didn't you? He says your thoughts were evil. And I find this so compelling because in my own life, I like to pretend that it's a little better than it is. But the gospel exposes us for the reality of the sinful nature that we have and says, look, you are nothing without Jesus Christ. Period. And as a church, we've got to get beyond loving, pretty people and start to realize that the church and the gospel deal in the messy. They live in broken people's lives. The gospel intersects our lives at those points. So when Kim walks in these doors, when John walks in these doors, what is our response he said, to reach over and take her hand and say, I love you and I don't even know you. See, what James is doing is he's setting us up. He's setting us up for, to basically say, the gospel should change how you live. Listen to how he goes on. He says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with your evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor, verse 5, who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. It is, not the, is it not the rich who is exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the name of him whom you belong? He says, listen, brothers, Christians, hear me say this. Has God not chosen the poor to be rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom? See, this is a a kind of a trend that runs through Scripture, right? God thinks differently. Now, we would think that the place of prominence, the person of power, the person of opportunity has the greatest opportunity for impact. I mean, after all, everybody in the community knows them. They have more money. They have more resources. If we can just win them to Christ, then, I mean, the impact they have is staggering. But see, God thinks really differently, doesn't he? James says, has God not chosen the poor to do the amazing? Think about the Old Testament for a minute. I mean, think about when God speaks to Samuel and he says, Samuel, I want you to anoint a new king of Israel. And so he sends Samuel on a mission to find this guy named Jesse. And Jesse's got a whole bunch of sons and his sons are really great looking guys. Remember the story and and Samuel stands there and Jesse parades his beautiful sons in front of him. And they're tall and they're handsome and they're good looking. And they are worthy to be king because of how they are. And what is Samuel's response? He's saying God has basically said not to look at the outward appearance. Because man looks at the outward appearance, but God, for Samuel 16, looks at the heart. And so Samuel looks at Jesse and he says, I recognize these are some good looking dudes, but God's saying that none of these guys are going to be king. Do you have any other sons? And, and Jesse says, well, and I, I got one, but he's youngest and he's out Tending the sheep, he's a shepherd. And Samuel says, go get him. We're not going to sit down until you do. So they send for him. And sure enough, here comes this small shepherd boy named David who everybody else overlooked. And Samuel basically said, as soon as he walked in, Samuel said, anoint him. This is who God's chosen. And God chose someone like David To rule the kingdom of Israel. And think about the New Testament for a minute. I mean, who are the disciples? These are fishermen. These are uneducated Gentile people that God chose to carry the most important and significant message in all of human history. They became the voice of God. Are you serious? In a society that puts so much kind of uh, importance on education and prominence and religious culture, God chose a guy that baits a hook for a living to proclaim the good news? You see what God does? He thinks very differently. And this is what James is saying. He's saying, listen brothers, God thinks differently. But the church has fallen into the same trap that the culture has fallen into for centuries. Which is, we start to think And act the way that culture thinks and acts. And God does it totally differently. So James says, listen, don't give away your sinful nature with your heart. Understand that God moves differently. And that the gospel is messy and that God will do things in a really messy way. So he says, has God not chosen the poor, right, to be rich in faith? In other words, God turns your your paradigms completely upside down. He goes on to say this. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in just one part is guilty of breaking the whole thing. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you commit adultery but commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. So this is what James is saying. He goes, listen. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep this, you've done right. Now this, of course, is uh, the second part of Jesus' really famous words in Matthew 22 where the Pharisees are trying to entrap Jesus and they go, Hey, Jesus, which is the greatest of all the commandments? And Jesus looks at him and he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. These are the great commandments. All the law and the prophets hang on these. And it's a really important thing because what Jesus is saying is that first and foremost love the Lord with everything that you are. And then love people as yourself. And James picks it up and he says the royal commandment is to love people as yourself. And I want to make a little note here because I think it's important because James mentions it to just kind of mention it. And that is, I had somebody one time stop me and say, Trev, we were talking and they said, Trev, I don't know what to do with this verse. To love people as you love yourself and we were sitting across the table from each other and he said because here's why I hate myself I really do when I look in the mirror I hate who I see I know who I am I'm a mess I make poor choices I've done things that I'm so ashamed of I don't love myself so what does Jesus mean when he says love people as I love myself And I sort of thought about it for a while because I think most of us get what Jesus is saying. Because we've grown up in school where we hear the things like treat other people as you want to be treated. So we get the idea. But I think fundamentally there's something here that we have to understand. And that is at some point in time we have to understand what Jesus is really talking about when he's talking about self-love. Because we live in a, in a kind of Christian culture that says humility at all costs, which is like downplaying ourselves. And so if we're going to downplay ourselves, how do we love people as we love ourselves? And what does that really mean? Well, I think it really means self-love is intuitive. All right, self-love, you have to go beyond self-esteem and self-liking. Because self-love is intuitive. It's something that we naturally are inclined to do. When I'm cold, what do I do? I put on a jacket. I don't have to like myself to put on a jacket. I'm cold. I want to kind of not be cold anymore. And I love myself intuitively enough to put on a coat. When I'm hungry, I eat a sandwich. I want to love myself enough to eat a sandwich. It doesn't mean I have to like myself, it means that I care enough about myself not to starve. When I'm hurt, I try and relieve that pain. See, my self-esteem and, and self-worth don't have to be at an all-time high to intuitively just do the things that it takes to love my basic needs, to love myself. It's almost as natural as breathing. So what if, and just hang with me for a minute, because if, if, we, if you really understand what I'm getting ready to say, it's going to be really dangerous. But, so hang with me. What if we loved people? What if that verse, love people as you love yourself, really was getting at that core principle? That we got away from the idea of liking and into the idea of loving. What if loving people was not about love them like you like yourself, but love them intuitively like you love yourself intuitively? In other words, when I see someone cold, with the same reaction that I have in my own life to put a jacket on, I have that same deep-seated desire to put a jacket on that person. When I see someone that's starving or when I see someone that's hungry or that's hurting, my same reaction to take care of my own needs will be to take care of their needs that I cannot pass them by without wanting to feed them. Now what does it mean you can feed the world? But what if that was your nature? That as natural as it was to breathe was how you loved other people. That you loved them the same way you had that intuitive self-love. See, it's not about liking and self-esteem. Sometimes loving doesn't involve liking, right? We've all been there. I can love you, but I don't have to like you right now. See, I really think what James is getting at is this. At the very core of our lives, we take care of ourselves. It's as natural as breathing. We love ourselves enough to provide for our own needs. What if, and just what if, it was as, came as naturally, naturally to us to love people that way as it did the way that we love ourselves. What if when I saw you cold and I had on a jacket, my reaction was to give you my jacket? See, James is using this example of a rich and poor person walking into church, and he's saying, what if you thought differently about people in general? Because James looks at him and he says this, You brothers and Christians and followers of Christ sitting here looking at the law, right? You're looking at the law and you're saying, look, you say don't commit adultery. I've never cheated on my wife or my husband. You say don't murder. I've never murdered anybody. I'm good. But James says the moment you decided to love pretty people, the moment you decided to love yourself more than you love someone else, you broke the whole law. So quit propping yourself up by thinking your life is morally okay and realize that you are a dirty, messy, sinful person just like that poor person that walked the doors. Just like Kim. Just like John. See, James set us up to help us understand that we are all lawbreakers. Every single one of us is sinful and broken. Yeah, we may wear it differently than Kim. We may wear it differently than John. But every single one of us is broken and in desperate need of the gospel that exposes us for who we are. So quit thinking that just because you didn't go out last night and sell yourself, or because you're not filling your veins with drugs, that somehow you have a different life. The reality is every single one of us broken and messy and dirty and desperate need of Jesus Christ, the only reason we are is because Jesus breathed life into our lungs And that should change the way that we see everything. Because when we begin to really realize who we are, it'll change the way that we see people. And I think the church loves pretty people because we paint a picture that we're pretty. But when we're honest and we expose ourselves for the messed up families and lives and sinners that we really are in desperate need of Jesus Christ, we begin to love messy people. We begin to love dirty people. We begin to love the story of the redeemed as much as we love the story of the broken because we recognize that through Jesus Christ he can redeem and heal all. And I think that there is such a great place in our church for those celebrative moments when someone gets up and they tell their story about how they were saved, how they gave their life to Jesus Christ and how he broke the bondage of slavery and set them free. There is such a place for that in our church and I want to celebrate that but there's also a place in our church for that girl that walks in off the streets for the first time and says, I am dying for someone to tell me that I am loved. Because that is the entry point to this. And as a church, we may celebrate the fact that, yeah, we have people here from different backgrounds and walks of life, and different races and socioeconomic statuses or whatever. That's great. But the moment we become complacent with who we are, we begin to live in mediocrity. And mediocrity, as I keep telling us in these weeks, leads to inauthenticity. You've got to understand who you are. Listen to how James wraps all this mess up. He says, verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James basically says this. He goes, listen, speak and act and live like you know who you are. He's saying stop the gossip, right? Stop thinking about yourself as being a little bit better Stop pretending you're something you're not and begin to live who you are. And who are you? As we've learned over the past four weeks, we are broken, sinful, messy, dirty people redeemed by the loving grace of Jesus Christ alone. That's it. As James told us, you didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to warrant it. And you're not doing anything to make it better. It's only because of Jesus. Start living like who you are. Drop the judgment at the door. And when Kim walks in, when John walks in, pick up their hand. Better yet, go find Kim and John and bring them with you. See, the church, Big C, loves pretty people, but the gospel engages in the messy. What's the picture of your Christian life? Is it pretty? Or does it live a little bit in the messy? Are a lot of boundary lines blurred with you? I think the gospel blurs our boundaries. It blurs the boundaries between races. It blurs the boundaries between poor and rich. It blurs the boundaries between me and you. It blurs the boundaries between the guy on the corner of Penn and me and my car. You know, perhaps there's no better picture of all that James is explaining in this table that we're going to share in today. I mean, ultimately, this is what Jesus did for us. He loved you and I in such a deep, desperate way that he gave the life of his son to give us life. I mean, this picture of this table is the ultimate picture of the messy gospel. That God, being betrayed by the very creation that he breathed life into, died to give us life. To change our brokenness to beauty. To go from sinful to beloved to change all of our issues and cover them with his grace and his love. And this morning what we're celebrating is not what we can do for Jesus, but what Jesus done, has done for us. This becomes the ultimate picture of a life that lays down and says, God, mess me up. Let's pray together.